You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We appreciate you being with us. I am joined today by the one and only Joey Bell and just Joey Bell. What's going on, bud? Doing pretty good. Coming at you semi-live from my daughter's bedroom right now because my my Add 10 square foot office is being constructed <laughs> in the in the corner of a uh, of a bonus room we have upstairs so i had to relocate for recording today but we're all good everything's good all right hijacking your daughter's room for work purposes i mean yep. you know you pay the bills around there anyway right you can do what you want that's right till she can either beat me in a fist fight or start paying bills she's gonna do what i say as far <laughs> as i'm right. concerned that's right well we uh we are missed by Paul Finley today, uh, the audience will quickly notice that the smooth, melodious tones of Paul Finley's voice are absent in this particular segment because uh, he's down, and he is down bad. Yeah. Um, between the three of us, I feel like he comes down with some with some sickness semi a little bit more frequently um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Uh, he lives with a germ incubator, much like you do. Yeah, Black Plague was started at a daycare. You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. Anything anyone's got, they'll bring it home for you. So, yeah, Paul Paul can barely talk right now, but he's with us in spirit, and he will also be uh, a heavy part of the interview segment we have coming up, Ryan Penlerick, that we have coming up. Ryan is actually the program director, the CIM program director for Texas State University, one of the newer uh, universities for the CIM program. Not the newest. That's South Dakota State. However, uh, Texas State is still relatively new and we talk about the MTSU program quite a lot here on the show for obvious reasons. Turned into a really good episode. Yeah, he expounded a lot on their program, and we learned a lot of interesting things about it. Uh, MTSU gets a lot of the glory, it seems like, just because we were the flagship school. But, man, those handful of other CIM programs, I wish they got more publicity because the, just since they're scattered all over the country, they're – there's an opportunity for almost anybody to go and join a CIM program just about anywhere. 
Yeah, yeah. They they dot them around the country strategically, I would assume, um, but they do a good job of that. So, yeah, they're going to carry the baton and, and see how they can grow that program as well and, and aspire to be like MTSU has been, um, as they've been a great role model for the program for quite some time now. But uh, getting into some industry news, um, you know, our, our boy Paul being down from the vid, you know, kind of got me thinking about how things have changed. And, you know, as much as we want to get away from it, that damn word just keeps popping up. I hate I hate even saying the C word. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> it starts with C, ends with Ovid. <laughs> It's still prevalent, and it's never more prevalent in the construction industry and the economy in general. So I got to looking at some numbers. Uh, As we start 23, we came back from World of Concrete, where we had some economists talking to us about the outlook of the construction industry. We see uh, interest rates on the rise, but we're not really seeing as much of a slowdown as we anticipated. Um, But that might be because the economy is always anywhere between 24 to 36 months behind. Um, and in today's day and age where it's instant gratification, we want to see the cause and effect three hours later. Um, but instead we might see it three to six quarters later, you know? So, so I'm looking at some numbers here and, uh, I fell back on a previous uh, guest of ours, Anurban Basu. He's an ABC chief economist there with the business that he has. He's done everything from, you know, give his thoughts on, on industry news to construction dive and, and other uh, media sources. And you know, every once in a while, he'll even, uh, he'll even advise the White House. So very respected gentleman among, the, um, among those economy sectors. He said, after recording the biggest drop over two years of, of overall construction and non-residential input prices, price of construction, um, they're back on the rise again a little bit. Um, and both categories are about 5% higher right now than they were about a year ago. It needs to be said that you know, recent unemployment and retail sales indicate that the economy is not slowing as quickly as they predicted, he says, you know, as we just touched on. That's the good news. The bad news, however, is that the economy remains overheated. We always talk about that overheating problem, right? So as long as there's demand there, you know, there's, there's going to be work to be done. There's not enough people to do the work, and, and the, the costs rise because of that. And inflation is anytime you have too much resources, too much money going after too few goods. That's where your, your inflation comes from. And that really hasn't changed a whole lot in the last two, two and a half years. Um, but they did come out with some really good stats from January's uh, producer price index. The PPI basically tracks the change in prices um, for, through various commodities and inputs. So inputs to multifamily construction is up 5.5% year over year, and it's up 35.5% since February 2020. That was, wow. you know, pre-D-Day. I guess the beginning of March 2020 is when COVID started. So since that point, it's up 35.5%, remains to be high. Um, commercial construction, up 5% year over year, 38% since COVID. And then as far as commodity goes, man, commodities are off the charts. So especially in the energy sector, like natural gas is up 220% Wow, since COVID. And it, it's still, to this day, it's up 8% from, from this point last year. Uh, there are a few things that have gone down year over year. Uh, a lot of such is like steel, um, iron, hot rolled steel, like your bars and plates and square box tubing, stuff like that, steel mill products. That's all down anywhere between 7 and 30%. Um, 
But since COVID, they're still it's still up over 50% what it used to be. The biggest drop, I guess, is um, softwood lumber is, is down year over year about 40% because it had to be. It got so dang high for, <laughs> for a minute. Um, and, and honestly, it's only, I say only, it's only up about 20% higher now than mm-hmm. it was uh, pre-COVID. But, um, but yeah, prices are still hot. It's certainly hot. And um, the industry backlog remains as high as it's been throughout the course of all last year. And that backlog is what we talk about all the time, right? So that's, that's <laughs> too much money going after too few goods. you got people who want houses, and there ain't enough people to build houses. So, mm-hmm. um, But, you know, what does that all mean? I don't know. The, ironically, the strength of the market, the strength of our economy being as resilient as it is, that, that's, that's actually at some point going to affect the economic activity. Mm-hmm. It actually makes the recession more likely sometime in, in, in maybe the near distant, distant future. It's basically just delaying the inevitable, essentially, is what Anurban Basu uh, continues or, or goes on to say here. So there's just some numbers I wanted to throw out there. I know a lot of people listening are, are certainly in tune with those prices and, and the fluctuations of such. But um, looking at it from a consumer-related point as well, because that's what drives a lot of this, right? Your, your commercial construction... You have states, municipalities, and things of that nature, tax dollars essentially paying for that. But the you know housing, non-residential construction of that nature, that's, that's driven by the consumer. Uh, and one thing to keep an eye on is consumer credit card debt. You ready for some numbers, Joey Bell? Let's have it. There is a record $930 billion worth of credit card debt. Wow. That number that number is the end of Q4 2022. So that number is just about 2 months old now. 930 billion dollars. That is an 18 and a half percent increase year over year. So in one year we have increased the national credit card debt almost 20%. That's unbelievable. The average interest rate on those credit cards are 20%. Ooh. So so 20% is a high number, right? But let's mm-hmm. put it into perspective here. If you had the average credit card debt, which is $5,800, 5805 to be exact, is the average credit card debt. So if you just made the, the minimal payment on that card, it would take you 17 years to pay it off. Oh. If you made minimum payments on $5,800 worth of credit card debt, it would take you 17 years to pay it off, and you would pay a total of $8,200 in interest. Golly, that nope. is eighty two hundred dollars in interest. Just in interest. So eight, what's eighty two plus fifty eight hundred? That's what about fourteen. Uh, fourteen grand. That yep. could. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better because there were two hundred and two million new credit card accounts opened just in Q four of twenty two. What? In three months, in three months, in 2022, there were 202 million new credit accounts open. What in the world drove those people to open new credit card accounts, you think? The prices that we just spoke of, the construction-related increases since COVID and and year over year, um, that doesn't just pertain to the construction industry, man. That goes for groceries, that goes for energy, that goes for clothing, that goes for 
daycare that goes for mm-hmm. that goes for everything, man. Everything's more expensive, and and people aren't putting vacations on credit cards now. They're putting monthly grocery bills. Yeah. So, um, so all wow. of that is to strengthen my position in that eventually. Oh, well, it's not my position. It's Honor Bonbasu's. I'm not as smart as he is, but he's basically saying that the current resilience of our economy is basically just making a recession more and more likely. It's just, it's just inevitable. Um, and a lot of these new credit accounts, they are to subprime borrowers. They're not, Mm -hmm. and that's going to lead to more delinquent payments and, and the banks never lose. So if we've learned anything, (laughs) the banks don't lose. Oh, they're never going to lose. They're always going to make their money. No doubt about it. I kind of wonder where, so you know, we've talked about unemployment a lot on here and the fact that, like, construction companies, for instance, they're having to raise their wages just to, just to recruit and keep people. I wonder where the, all that falls into place as far as, you know, the increase in costs uh, because that's an added cost. That's a significant percentage increase in cost in, mm-hmm. in some of these cases where you're sometimes doubling your – salary or hourly wage or just or signing bonuses or whatever that's an additional cost that these companies are factoring in somewhere yeah and depending on what the business is and and what the product is you know you can only absorb so much um, and you can only cut your profit so much and until it, it essentially or eventually has to be passed on to the consumer and that's another big driver of of you know these inflation numbers as well and and you know let's not Let's be honest here. The businesses are taking it on the chin as well. So mm-hmm. um, at the start of the pandemic, n- nearly 3.8 million small businesses opened economic injury disaster loans. Do you remember that? It's different from the PPP deal. Mm-hmm. And I'll get into that, which was a complete joke perpetrated by our federal, federal government. But these are these are businesses, small businesses that took out – uh, EIDL loans again. That's economic injury disaster loans. Um, the loans averaged about a hundred grand each, um, mm-hmm. and they were thirty-year notes with three point what is three point seven five percent interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really good. I mean, there for a while, especially during COVID, money was cheap. Man, you had a lot of people borrowing money because you mm-hmm. could, and, yep. and the interest rates were super low. But uh, fast forward after two years of being able to defer those payments. The note came due on a lot of those a lot of those loans. The note came due at the end of January this year, and two thirds of those loans actually the first payment was due. So you're talking a little bit over two million loans, and like any other loan, it, you know it's, it's interest first. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like a mortgage would be or any, or anything else. Um, so the principal of that loan you know, still hasn't been hit by the majority of the business. And um, the Small Business Association estimates that 32 to 34 billion in interest has accrued over the last 30 months Golly. from these loans. So um, I don't know. You can declare hardship. If you declare hardship on these loans, you can make a payment of up to 10 percent of your monthly payment for about six months. But the interest will keep accruing. And you know, if if bar the borrowers are still responsible for these loans, even if the business doesn't exist anymore. Um, but then, of course, bankruptcy is always an option, and mm-hmm. uh, you know. But um, yeah, so the the small business loan side of the economy is is just as much in debt as the consumer side is is what I learned. And 
we didn't even talk about the the PPP loans. The government essentially forgave about 90 to 95% of those PPP loans, which was just a farce. And, and they they estimate that 64 of the $800 billion in PPP loans were suspected of being fraudulent. <laughs> people, people claiming that they needed this money to sustain a business and Mm-hmm. Because the government didn't didn't require people to prove they needed this money for anything. All you had to do was ask for it, say, I need this, and, and you got a loan because the government wanted to inject so much money into the economy so fast. But, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, man. The the, right. the piper come a calling mm-hmm. and I think I think we're almost there. Well, wasn't it uh, – didn't we talk about like there were some celebrities or whatever that applied for oh, some yeah. of the – or that quote-unquote applied for some Dude, of the Kardashians. Loans. The Kardashians <laughs> applied, for a, applied for a PPP loan and freaking got one. <laughs> <laughs> just needed to fire up an L- – uh, you know, just fill out an LLC form or something like that. Oh, God, and, I'm uh, sure they have rolling. several. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely and, – and there are cases of that $64 billion that they found was fraudulent. They probably mm-hmm. found that by not scratching very hard, let's be honest. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. we're going to hire. Meanwhile, they want to hire eighty-seven thousand IRS agents to go after Venmo payments of over six hundred dollars. <laughs> Get out of here! Yeah, but yeah, no. It's there. There's all kinds of stories about people buying Lambos and stuff with PPP loans, <laughs> <laughs> and people have gone to jail. Like they have cracked down on some of it, but it's it's a very small percentage of what was actually loaned out and then forgiven. It's absolutely incredible. What a mess! What a mess! Well. If um, if worse comes to worse, we could probably eat concrete. As far <laughs> <laughs> and uh, these uh, this old boy, I say old boy, this this professor at the <laughs> University of Japan. <laughs> his uh, his name is. Uh, let me see if I can pronounce this in a Tennessee accent. Uh, Yuya Sakai at the University of Japan. Yeah, you uh, might have butchered it, but it sounded nice. I'm I'm proud of that. Uh, <laughs> He's uh, he's studying edible cement, and the way they're making this edible cement is they're taking food waste, uh, mostly vegetables and fruits. I mean, it would be kind of hard to do this, I think, with you know meats or other proteins like that. Um, but they're taking vegetables and fruits. They're basically drying them out to uh, in an oven or some kind of dehydrator at 221 degrees Fahrenheit, which is kind of low. So anybody that's ever dehydrated stuff, that's about the temp or maybe even lower that you make like beef jerky, uh, dried fruit snacks, uh, just whatever. They dry them out. They pulverize them in a blender. uh, They mix it with water and actually some seasonings. And then they hot press it at about 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the, uh, the pictures I saw in this article, they almost looked like just like little cakes, or, you know, something of the nature. Uh, I was like about little, to say that uh, sounds like the same process they used to make Pringle chips. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they look like, uh, I mean, they could, you could press it in probably any shape that you wanted to, but most of these that I saw were like hockey pucks or some kind of little squares, rectangles or whatever. And they were testing it. I mean, they were running it through the mill, you know, just like it would pretty much any other cementitious uh, product, you know, measuring resistance, strength, all this other stuff. And oddly enough, this uh, this Chinese cabbage that they were testing was was three times more resistant than regular, you know, Portland cement. Get out of here! Which was pretty interesting. Uh, the uh, the different types of foods, you know, require different temps, different pressures, so that can kind of give you an idea of just how much 
testing they had to do with this stuff. Think of all the different types of food uh, and all the different types of tests that you would have to run to find out anything about any of these foods. So I can't imagine. I, I would imagine there were thousands of tests run with oh, just yeah. some of this stuff. Uh, the goal from all this was to use the food waste, uh, mm-hmm. which I think worldwide they say the the world wastes 900 million tons of food a year, which is incredible. That's a lot, lot of food. So I think the the construction side of this is in the super early ages. I mean, not even really testing it as far as building materials. But one of the things that they are, that one of the goals that they have for uh, this edible cement or the, the food waste cement is to make temporary housing for refugees. Uh, they could press press this stuff together and just make temporary shelters, I guess, in times of emergency, you know, uh, weather disasters, any kind of global event like that, or just for what other reason that a bunch of people need a place, dry place to sleep in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- these these things they look like hockey pucks, or this they they are the same size as hockey pucks. I think those those were just samples that I saw, oh, yeah, yeah. and I also saw uh, like they almost look like tiles. So I would imagine you could like gotcha. attach those to some kind of framework right. and uh, make these structures that they're talking about. They're they're also talking about making furniture and pretty much any other just regular stationary object with this stuff. Um, and there there's a company called Fabula Incorporated, which is uh, focused on making utensils with this edible cement. They got big plans. It's one of those things that you dry something out, grind it up, mix it with some water, and if it gets hard enough, you can probably make just about anything out of it. And if it's durable, right. then you can make any, even more stuff with it. So it was, I don't know, it was just pretty neat. And we can add food scraps to the long list of things that we can throw in concrete now. Yep, yep, add another one to the list. That's pretty incredible. So I used I used your figure of total food waste and divided it, uh, assuming that there's eight billion people on on Earth, and that's about two hundred twenty five pounds per person. That's I mean, a year that seems almost reasonable, at least for yeah. Americans, because we eat a lot of stuff. Right, three hundred sixty five days a year, less than a pound a day. And if oh. uh, if those people have kids like I do, there's mm. no telling how much that ends up at the end of the year because. Mm. Anybody with a toddler knows that you can make a five-course meal and they won't eat any of it. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Well, that's 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 interesting, man. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that the the reason the list is so long is because as as long as you can dry something out, make it durable mm-hmm. and and impermeable to a certain degree, I mean, you can you can build stuff with it. Well, yeah, and you got to think too. They use uh, like cement. I don't, I don't know what kind of grade of cement or what type of cement, but, you know, it just in like dental work. Mm-hmm. So they put cement in your in your mouth for fillings and whatever else, and uh, there is cement in all kinds of things. And if it's semi-durable, then just, I mean, just make something with it. Yep. Well, speaking of making stuff, our guest here is in charge of teaching young minds, like yours and mine used to be, how to make stuff with concrete? Uh, probably, if I had to guess, a little in in a little bit more of the uh, traditional sense of uh, mixing rock and sand and water and cement together. Uh, they hold they hold the food scraps out at least for now. 
But uh, Ryan Penlerick is going to come on here and talk to us about Texas State University and their CIM program. I'm pretty excited about this. But, you know, just to, just for a quick recap, uh, this isn't Ryan's first job. Uh, he has been all around the industry and has uh, has a wealth of industry knowledge before he went the route of an educator. Um, and uh, so far, he's been uh, pretty successful at anything he's done within the concrete industry. So really excited for you guys to hear this interview coming up with Ryan Penlerick from the Texas State University CIM program. Y'all enjoy. Our today we'll welcome in Mr. Ryan Penlerick. Thank you, sir, for coming in. Tell the people where you're broadcasting from. Good morning. We're here in San Marcos, Texas at Texas State University. Texas State University, and not just uh, any old program in Texas State University, but the Concrete Industry Management Program, near and dear to our heart. Uh, how are things going in the CIM program here in uh, spring 2023? Things are going really well. We've had a great couple of weeks to the semester. We actually caught a little break, had some days off last week because of some weather and ice storm and people getting power back on still today, but uh, we're back at it. Yeah, we heard about the storms because it was disrupting all the flights around the country and it was all, you know, Texas's fault. That's right. Yeah. Apparently, you know, I've lived down here in Texas now for 20, uh, 23, 24, 25 years. And so I never remember this happening until the last two or three years. Now it seems like it's something we're going to deal with every spring semester. So welcome to several days off of class every year. Well, if- you would just put less embodied carbon in that concrete. You wouldn't be in this situation, Ron. That's what they say. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good diplomatic answer. <laughs> well, it was, things for people to know about uh, Texas State is the Bobcats, right? That's correct. Bobcats. All right. The other interesting fact to know, do you know how many people are enrolled at this university? Holy smokes. There are 33,000 students enrolled at Texas State. That is not wow. a small number, sir. No, it's a it's a big university. Actually, I think we've got a second campus up in Round Rock too, so which is the north side of Austin. So I think total total we're at like thirty eight thousand. Wow, what part of uh, Texas is that? We are about twenty minutes south of Austin, Central Texas. Oh, okay, Hill Country. Hill Country, right on the edge, yeah. right on the Balcones Escarpment. Very good. The, la- the last thing I heard come out of that area, I was listening to. Uh, another podcast and it was with the bat researcher who was going on and on about the bats that fly out of that cave in Austin, like out from underneath the bridge. Do you know anything about that, Ryan? There's a few of them around here. You go farther west of here. There's, I used to have a deer hunting lease out and there was a great bat cave out there towards the Sabinal area, Concan area. So yeah, we've got pretty cool bat population. Yeah, it's interesting because people, now it's a tourist attraction. It went from being like they wanted to eradicate all the bats to now it's a tourist attraction. People just show up and they want to watch a million bats leave at the same time every night, you know, once the sun goes Mm -hmm. down. And what was interesting, like the way the guy actually got it preserved was by, he he actually went around Austin, specifically in Austin, went around with a bat in a cage and would like take it to people. And people were like, what is that? It looks so cute. This is a bat. And like, oh, I thought a bat was like, vampires and stuff he's like no they're actually harmless uh, unless they think you're attacking them they're they're literally harmless and they eat all the bugs so there are farms that have adopted bats instead of pesticides Mm -hmm. to eat the pests out there 
which is which is crazy. And I don't know how they researched that, but segueing that into concrete, I'd love to know uh, over at the CIM program there, um, what research initiatives are going on right now? And, and specifically everything that we hear about on our end um, is everything's about low, low carbon concrete. Is that what y'all are focused on or is there other things going on in this world that we need to be aware of? Well, there's definitely other things going on. The the carbon stuff, the sustainability stuff is going to be a big part of the research that, that we're doing. But, uh, you know, something that's interesting over here, Dr. Torres, Dr. Anthony Torres, he's been working with some geopolymer concrete stuff. And he actually got a grant. I think it was about last May for a NASA mines grant. And so he's he's trying to help work through this idea of how we're going to pour concrete on the moon. I mean, it, it's coming. We all know this and how this geopolymer type concrete is going to be 3D printed. And, and so there's a lot of research just starting with with that type of idea, how we how we go to outer space and, and make concrete products. So we've read the papers that come out of Penn State uh, about cement hydration and low gravity environments. Uh, we talked to Dr. Tyler Lay here on the podcast about some of the work that he was investigating here. Uh, what's Dr. Torres specifically investigating as far as geopolymer concrete on the moon? Well, that's the very good question. And that's something we need to get him on this podcast to talk about. I know it's really just barely getting started with the with the award. And they we're actually sending two of our undergrads with him to Albuquerque, New Mexico this summer on an internship to really get this thing kicked off. They're going to be working with the Space Force over there. So how much of it's already started and how much of it is still to come is what we really need to dig into. And there might be more questions than than answers at this point. But what we talked about on previous episodes is you must you must have to use local materials up there, right? You, it would seem so. So, like, how do you how do you get those to test? <laughs> <laughs> For every every pound we put on a rocket, you know, there's there's some offsetting weight and then you know the the fluids the the hydraulics of you you understand transporting water on a highway now try thinking about transporting water on a rocket to the moon i mean it's there's a lot of things to consider beyond just the chemistry of the of the concrete mix itself is transportation and you know we're, we're going up there and that fluid water or whatever it is is got the high potential to freeze as we transport it i mean there's there's a lot of considerations to think about it's interesting, geopolymer concrete here in the United States, like every five years, it like resurfaces, like it's this magical thing that nobody's ever thought about. And it's going to be the new way that we are able to make concrete that just doesn't have, whether it's not having any emissions or environmentally sustainable or whatever the, the catchphrase is, every five years, it, it gets a new little label. And it's amazing. And, and somebody goes out and tries it and golly, we've had some big failures with geopolymer concrete. Um, are, have you looked into any any projects? I come to this program with a little different perspective than than maybe most. We've got three great material scientists here as faculty members at Texas State. So my expertise comes more from the industry application, cost, scheduling, availability, how to make it happen rather than you, you know, I, I say you guys figure out how to put it in the truck and what to put in the truck and, and I'll take it from there. <laughs> so that's the piece of the puzzle that I'm delivering to our students here at Texas State. 
That's great. Well, what was your experience before coming to I have a construction management degree from Colorado State and then decided about, I don't know, eight or 10 years into my career that I was recruiting students to come work for the companies that I'd worked for. And I just started looking at, you know, I really, I really need to go back. I need to give back. I need to impart my knowledge back to students. So I went and got a master's of education and then just about wrapped up my PhD right now. I'm getting a PhD in construction science and management. So I'm writing my dissertation. My last class is this semester. I'm writing my dissertation. So we're, we're almost there. We're almost over the hump. But uh, my background is I worked for a general contractor in the San Antonio area for 11 years from assistant project manager to project manager to vice president, started a commercial division. And then 2008 through 2011 were brutal years. I don't know if you guys were in the industry yet or just coming into the industry, but it was tough. And I ended up having to lay off a bunch of friends and coworkers and it really burned me out. So I, I left for a year and went to work for another company in Austin and decided, you know, I can do this on my own. So I started my own business in 2011. So from 11 to October of 22, I had a commercial general contracting company, and then we had several subsidiaries, had a concrete company, had a residential company, had a real estate holding company. And so I kind of parted all those out to the various business partners and, and came over here to Texas State full-time on October 1st. Wow. So I don't know if it's like this with all degrees at the university, but it was the same way for us at our CIM degree at MTSU. The people who were teaching us were guys who were presidents of ready-mixed concrete companies or had been in the industry working for BASF or whoever and decided you know, they were retiring and they wanted to come over and teach the next generation. Is it that's your story? Is it is it similar to the rest of the faculty there? It is. So that's one of the great things about the CIM program is it's so industry forward. Whether we've got faculty members that are full time or whether we've got adjunct faculty that are members, current members of industry coming back to teach, we're getting a really good mix of theory with practical applicability from industry. We want the students to understand we need to be able to apply everything that you're learning here. And the only way to do that is to learn from people who have applied it or are currently applying it. How many kids do you have enrolled right now? I know when Joey and I were in, I think, and I think the numbers are still kind of similar, actually. We had about 400 students enrolled in the program. And I think we were graduating like 40 a year. Are y'all seeing some similar kind of numbers? So even MTSU, the last couple of years, you know, this, yeah, I want to say it, COVID was hard on the CIM programs, harder maybe on the CIM programs than a lot of other college degree programs. Because as you guys know, we're not a name brand program yet. We're not an engineering, mechanical, civil, we're not business administration, marketing. It's something that people have to be told about. And then they say, well, what is it? And then we have to tell them what it is and how great it is. So for two years, we weren't able to do that nationally. So all of the programs really suffered from declining enrollments. Um, MTSU in the heyday, it sounds like you all were there in the heyday when in the 400s. I think the numbers that we got in January at World of Concrete was about 160 in the program at MTSU. Texas State, we're at about 40. And 
were pretty similar with Cal State Chico and NJIT. They're in the 50s and 60s. And then South Dakota State just started. So they've they've got three semesters in, I think, now. So they're at 11 or 12 students. So that's why we're here. That's that's why I reached out to you and wanted to get on here. And, and really, I'm sure you've probably seen my social media blitz, which, you know, an old guy trying to learn social media and get out there and, and just put stuff out there. But we're really trying to get this CIM program back out there to people that need to understand what it is and the value it brings. Well, one thing I've kind of noticed in all of our travels, it seems like almost everywhere we find somebody from the CIM program here at MTSU, we hardly ever find an M- or a, a CIM grad from another one of the programs. And I'm not trying to dis, I'm not trying to brag on MTSU or anything like that, but it, it seems like I don't I don't know where you guys go or we're just not going to the right places. What kind of uh, where are these people going? They're leaving Texas State with a CIM degree. I'd say very few of us are leaving Texas. I mean, this is a huge state with a huge, huge, huge market for cement production, aggregate production, ready mix all the way through construction. So. Our university could be as large as MTSU was in the heyday with 400 students, and we could place 40, 50, 60 graduates a year in Texas, and no one would ever have to leave. I mean, I know there's a couple of more recent graduates that I've reached out to and been in contact with that have gone to, there's one in Montana and one in California and one up in, in Washington, so headed, you know, headed towards the West Coast, but we're staying in Texas. I think the location of MTSU helps us out a lot too, because I mean, within a handful of hours, you can be at several major cities. And so they, with our numbers, you know, we're able to scatter out a little bit more. And it sounds like where you guys are and where a couple of these other states are, I don't know about New Jersey, New Jersey, maybe uh, their footprint may be pretty big, but it seems like Texas and especially like South Dakota, it seems like a little bit of an isolation for you guys. You're having to recruit local, and they're staying local when they leave there. Yeah, I mean, we have to understand who we are as a university. So our our university data, we're like 92% student population from the state of Texas. And so we don't really need to recruit outside the state of Texas at this point. You know, we need to focus on bringing the 92% of students who want to come to Texas State, and it's more about educating them about the degree program instead of trying to sell them on a university. You know, I think moving forward as we continue to grow and the years go on, you know, obviously we border New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana. So some of those border states could definitely produce some students for Texas State. And, you know, internationally, we don't even think about internationally, but this this concrete stuff, this is a worldwide product. So there's no reason why we're not reaching out internationally and bringing students into these five programs and then sending them back out into the the world with this degree. A couple of you MTSU grads, you could go to work anywhere in the world. We don't have this program anywhere else in the world, but five universities. That's an interesting fact. You know, another good thing that Texas State has going forward is you're close to Austin, which is a killer city. And then, especially if you're recruiting local and you're finding people, and it's like, yeah, you can go back to your home hometown and probably get a job which is pretty incredible with mtsu being in nashville i remember when when joey and i were there in the mid-2000s and we graduated at at the end of that of the aughts decade and 
there there were so many kids that, like just didn't want to leave Nashville. Like they're like, oh, I want to I want to work here in Middle Tennessee. I don't want to leave. And the best jobs were out of state. The best jobs were uh, with the biggest companies at that time. Where you had to go out of state for those. Uh, te- Texas is a different beast, though. I mean, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth area. Uh, those are like two of the top three or top five construction cities in the United States. No, absolutely. Opportunities are basically endless there. I, I actually want to start on the front end of that pipeline when you're starting to recruit people. So when Joey and I were there and even afterwards, recruiting the next crop of talent was the conversation. It was the topic of conversation constantly. It always is. It's all. I think Joey's involved now as an alum with that kind of stuff. Uh, what's your what's your process there? How are you trying to get that next ten kids into the program, next twenty kids in the program? As you try to go from being one hundred and sixty, which is nothing to sneeze at, uh, up to three hundred, how, how how are we doing that? How are we doubling the enrollment? Yeah, we've got a multi pronged approach that we've got to go. And what I've found is industry still needs to be educated on who we are. Believe it or not, here in Texas, there are more industry members that don't know about CIM than do. And, you know, I think I said it to somebody the other day, I don't know how many employees, I just go down the list of Vulcan, Martin, Marietta, all these companies that are within a stone's throw of our campus and how many hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of employees that they have. And all of those employees purportedly have children or nieces, nephews, cousins, sisters, brothers, And if we just filled up our program with family members of industry, we would be at three, four, five, six, seven hundred students easily. So and then beyond that, educating industry, we're getting out into high schools and we're really focusing on STEM programs because this is a Bachelor of Science degree and a science based degree. You you guys know that from from your time in the program. It's very science based. And we're getting into these CTE programs and CTE in Texas, career and technical education is really changing the last couple of years. It used to be, you know, kind of looked down upon as, you know, it was some ag programs and some home ec. But now, I mean, I was in Brazosport ISD last week and they've got a rockets program in their CTE program. So these students are working with industry, learning how to build and develop rockets. So. I really want to try to figure out how to push some of this concrete curriculum into the high school CTE programs. I think it gets them interested at the high school level, gets them a baseline of knowledge. The construction and architecture and engineering CTE programs already exist. Let's get them talking about concrete, and then we're going to hook some more students and get them to come to these 5CIM programs. You know, some of the concrete people that we have in this industry uh, that come from the architecture world or the engineering world, they got hooked by one materials class because that's all you get. If you're getting those engineering degrees, you don't get a whole semester on concrete uh, materials and proportions. You get uh, one materials engineering class and a subset of that class is spent talking about concrete. And you'll you'll get guys that are just like, that. that's what hooks them. So that's an interesting thought that if you've got a similar program in the high school level in the state of Texas, get them that materials engineering course. And, and have concrete be a focus of that course, and you'll end up hooking a few of those engineering kids. Absolutely. What if there was some kind of sponsorship opportunity, like I'm sure you guys have with various events or just whatever, sponsors of the CIM program? 
and those companies, employees or children of employees would get like some kind of discount for CIM enrollment. I mean, I think there's a million and one ways to, to skin this cat. And it all starts with education and getting getting people to understand that number one, this degree program exists. Number two, what do the careers look like when you come out of this degree program? You know, I was talking with Rex Cottle the other day and you you all may know who he is, but he's the National Steering Committee Executive Director now. And he said he had a statistic that over 80% of CIM graduates are retained within the industry. You know, I don't think that there's very many, if any, industries that can claim that 80 plus percent are still retained. I mean, we've got 27 years now of MTSU graduates and Texas State graduates are hitting their 10 year mark in the industry from our first graduating class. So it's really pretty remarkable. And that just goes to show you that it is a great career and people are making money and having having good lives. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep doing it. Yeah, I think that's what happens when you have a degree field that was created by the industry for the industry, and then they end up liking the product that comes out of it. I, I think another way that uh, I don't know how I don't know how this happened if it was organic at MTSU or if there was a focus put on it, but almost all the concrete guys that I knew all had an ag background at MTSU, or it was, a, it was heavily skewed that a, a, a high percentage of the students in there had an agriculture background. Do y'all have something similar in your program? Not so much, but it is something we've targeted. And, uh, you know, agriculture is getting tougher and tougher. It's getting harder and harder to make a living in agriculture. And I, I grew up in Western Nebraska in farming community. So it's, it's tough. And most of these folks that want to farm, they are going to end up having to do it as more of a hobby than as a living. So they, this is kind of a natural transition where you can have a, a day job in the concrete industry and you can have your weekend farm ranch hobby that maybe you still stay in agriculture and, and, but you, but you've got a quote unquote, I'm gonna do the air quotes. You can't see me, but a, a real job on top of it. <laughs> I'm in the exact category that Paul, just described. I grew up on a farm and uh, I honestly didn't, I didn't know about the CIM program until I got to MTSU uh, for another degree. They ended up changing the CIM. And to speak to, you know, farming's getting harder and harder. I will almost somewhat uh, disagree with that <laughs> in that uh, I don't think that the act of farming is really getting harder physically. I think that it is extremely hard to get into farming from somebody that's not involved with farming. Because I remember growing up, my dad was a full-time farmer. He had, he and another guy were in partners uh, with uh, 2,100 acres of row crops, beans, wheat, corn. And then they each had their own uh, hog operations and cattle operations. And back then, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, that was a, it wasn't a huge operation, but it was about average. It was a significant sized operation. Now, his partner ended up passing away, and he didn't have any children to pass along anything to. But my dad offered to basically hand everything over to me. And he told me, he said, I'll give you the equipment. You run everything. I'll help you as long as I can and just kind of hand everything off. And I refused. I didn't want, I didn't want it. And so I ended up going to college and uh, getting a degree because I knew there were way easier ways to make a living. And 
it was better to get paid once a week or every other week than once or twice a year. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. And I think that's probably why a lot of our guys were agricultural background that ended up in the concrete field because we enjoyed that farming lifestyle. We enjoyed the blue collar aspect. We enjoyed the people, you know, we, we just enjoyed that type of work, but it wasn't really financially stable. And so what drew me to concrete for the concrete industry management program was that it was the best of both worlds. I had that blue collar atmosphere. I had that blue collar work. I didn't have to fly a desk for a living and I could make a pretty good paycheck and I would have a somewhat structured schedule. But if somebody wanted to get into farming now that did not grow up in farming or didn't have access to farming before, I think that's extremely hard to do. Yeah, it's tough, no doubt. And, and you touched on something that I think is really important to, to point out that when I go out to these high schools and I talk to these CTE students, a lot of them have the same attitude of, I'm in an ag program or I'm in a carpentry program or I'm in a whatever program because I don't want to sit behind a desk. And I, I'm not too sure I even want to go to college because I don't really want to ride a desk for the rest of my life or be in a cubicle. And when we explain to them that this CIM degree opens up the door for you to have a career. If you want to be behind a desk and you want to be an estimator, you're more than welcome to be a, a estimator and, and you're going to probably be in, in the office most of the time. But if you want to be a project manager or ready mix batch plan operator or own a concrete pumping company or something like that, you're going to end up being outside and out and about and traveling and doing different things most of your days. And that, so that really helps these students see, or these potential students see that there are jobs in the industry that pay really well, that you don't have to be behind a desk or inside all day. I think to be successful in, in any industry, any job, anything that you're going to pursue, hard work and hustle, there's no substitute for hitting the grind. And one of the things that I noticed from all the ag kids that would come in is they were not afraid of hard work. Like they were used to being around machinery. They were used to putting in long hours. Like hard work meant it was normal to them. And what I like about the concrete industry is, is the three co-hosts here on this show, we're completely different people. Josh has a hardworking background where he came from the racing industry. His dad was a semi-professional race car driver. And Josh picked up on a lot of those skills and spent a lot of nights in a garage turning a wrench. Joey comes from a farming background and I come from a single mom who was in sales who had to hustle and grind every month to make commissions to put food on the table. And so we each see what it means to put in that hustle and grind. And we actually all do it in our own ways to contribute and make a team. And if people want to get into this industry, you want to go to Texas State, you want to get a CIM degree, it doesn't mean you're going to have to be on the highway. It doesn't mean that you have to fly a desk with people who are only crunching numbers and being statisticians. It doesn't mean you have to work nights. But you know what? All these opportunities are open to you. And they're all going to be educational and they're probably all going to be beneficial to you to learn about other cultures and how other people work, to learn about what it means to run a business on the back end, what a P&L means and why it's important that you did or didn't spend all that money and break that concrete truck last week when you let the concrete harden inside the drum. You know, there's all kinds of lessons to be learned and jobs to be had. And it's, it's really about getting the word out there. So I say all that to ask you this, sir. What can we do to help you guys at Texas State? to get the word out about your program? Well, I think this is a great question. And we really rely on industry. 
you know it from your time in the in the MTSU program that industry was always involved. And that's what we are doing here at Texas State, and we're trying to do more of it, is getting industry involved. When we take these students out and we get to go on ready mix batch plant tours or cement plant tours or quarry tours or job site, you know, we're out there for a pour. They get to see what their life is going to look like two, three, four years from now. And it gets them excited. And as a, as a byproduct of that, we are taking pictures of job sites and, and our students out and about and interacting with industry. And we're putting that stuff on social media and the next generation of students who obviously live on social media are seeing, hey, this is, this is a pretty cool, look at these college students that are out on job sites and they're out on a pour or they're out watching blasting at, at a quarry just down the road from, from the campus. So it really helps them to see that college can be very different than, than what it's maybe been advertised for them. And then, you know, as an industry, I just say, keep talking about it. You know, talk about your degree, talk about what you're doing when you're, when you're out and about and, you, and there's other people in your company and, and they've got kids that are coming up on high school age, potential college age, talk to them about how, how the degree program looks, what it is, what, it, what it's done for, for your life and for your career. And, you know, kids see value in that. When they can associate a degree with a person who they can sh see as successful and, you know, have a pretty nice house and a pretty nice car and, you know, a pretty good living, they, they understand they can put two and two together. And I really think that's it. We just need to talk and talk and talk and talk about CIM. And it will, it, you know, it's either mutually assured success or mutually assured destruction, right? It's either going to work or it's not going to work. And I think it's going to work. It's just going to take everyone a little bit of effort making sure that it all comes together. One of the interesting things we did at MTSU, I'd like to know if you guys do this at Texas State, was uh, we have socials where the industry comes in and they present their companies to the kids and you offer them a free dinner. I mean, what college students not taking a free meal and they come in and uh, they, they get, Joey was just at one uh, the other day. Joey, how, what's the social look like these days? It was actually my previous company, uh, Atlantic Contracting. I worked for up in the mid Atlantic uh, that focused on airfield uh, paving. They're a general contractor too. So they listed off all the other things that they do. But yeah, they came in to recruit uh, mostly for interns for the summer and potentially, you know, future employees. They came in, uh, had uh, supper catered, which was Slick Pig, right down the road. Paul knows what I'm talking about. Uh, barbecue place. Give a presentation, you know, it's PowerPoints. Just describing what they do, uh, pictures. And uh, with Atlantic's case, they had some excellent pictures because we would work around a lot of military bases, airports, uh, so we would see a lot of aircraft, military aircraft, helicopters, jets, Air Force One. We saw that um, that space shuttle that was strapped to the top of that 747, paraphrasing, of course. But uh, we saw that thing get to fly into Dulles Airport. And uh, they painted the picture of how awesome it was to work in this field and to work for that company. And they didn't, I mean, they didn't sugarcoat anything. They told the, they told the, the group there that attended it was like, yeah, you're probably going to work 60, 80, sometimes 100 hours a week, you know, in the summertime when we're paving and everything's hot and heavy. And then it slow, slows down a whole lot in the wintertime. So it, it ends up, you know, kind of balancing out. 
but uh, basically what they were doing, just giving them, you know, the spiel about what goes on there, what to expect. Uh, they offered, you know, for interns, they offered, you know, to pay for their housing. They supplied housing and they supplied them a company truck, you know, to drive back and forth to all these job sites we were at, you know, New Jersey, um, Martinsburg, West Virginia, Southern Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, all these places. So that's basically what the socials are. And I imagine most of the other ones that, uh, that are scheduled for the semester are gonna, probably going to be the same way. Uh, just feeding kids, telling them what we're telling them what they're about. And then the next day they're uh, accepting interviews. So if you want to submit a resume and get on the schedule for an interview for an internship the following day, they hang around for the day uh, for the next day. And uh, they just interview yeah. you, interview people, uh, kids all day long. And then I guess the, I would assume the process after that is just following up phone calls, you know, scheduling, when can you start, you know, when you grad, when, when's the semester over? Cause these guys were like, okay, if you're done with the finals on Friday, can you be at work on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be, yeah. A, what other industries doing that? Right yeah. There? It was going to be a paid internship. Um, these kids were going to get paid very well for the summer. You know, you're making X amount of dollars an hour and you're going to be working a hundred hours a week with time and a half for overtime and whatever else, man, you are going to make bank uh, this summer because you don't have any bills. You don't have any housing uh, bills because they're supplying that. You don't have a truck payment or a car payment if you don't already have one because they're going to supply that too. Feed yourself and pay your phone bill. That's all you got to do. <laughs> and Ryan, do you guys have a, a similar type of thing there at Texas State? Yeah, we're actually trying to get it kicked off a little bit more again. You know, I keep go back. COVID put a damper on a lot of that stuff and, you know, what was happening before I got here, you know, really everything took a pause for a couple of years, but we did, we had one uh, right at the end of January, right when, you know, about a week or two after we got back from classes, we had some pizzas and we brought in, we actually brought in, I think there were seven companies that came and just, we, we hung out in the lobby here at the Roy F. Mitty building and had pizza and just had the students visiting with these six or seven company representatives that showed up and it was good. And we, we have to do more of it. And, you know, I, I like the idea of a little bit more formal presentation with one company that comes in with pictures and talks about their, about their business and, and the things that they do. So yeah, it's, it's all part and parcel to what we need to do. We have to keep the students that are here engaged. You know, we get them in the program and we want to keep them engaged and make sure they, they, matriculate through and, and graduate. And then at the same time, we got to bring students in and get them excited. So bringing, bringing students, potential students to campus, that's another thing that we really like to do. You know, it's, they, they need to see the labs and they need to see the different things that we're doing over here. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts to growing these programs and it's just, making sure that you're strategic about it. You know, like, like anything else coming from 25 years in the construction industry, there's only so many hours in a day. So you have to be really targeted in what you're doing, but there's, there's a lot of opportunity. And, and it's one of those things I truly believe in the program. I believe in the degree I've seen what it's done for, I think the 116 or 118 alumni that Texas state has out in the industry so far. And, you know, without a doubt, they're all successful. So that, that really speaks to what we're doing here. And I think MTSU, NJIT, Chico, South Dakota State, they're all able to point to the same thing and say, it works. It, you can't say that about every degree program. Some of them just, 
I mean, they, they're there, but they don't work. They don't produce a high paying career for a lifetime. Yeah, being the uh, the person on the panel here without a CIM degree, um, there's a lot of my friends that I graduated with that aren't doing a single thing related to the degree that they paid dearly for. They got a piece of paper and a job when they when they got out of college, but they're no longer doing uh, what they set out to do in college because turns out they like money more so than uh, following their their degree career. But um, speaking of speaking of liking money, and um, you know, been been listening for a little bit. We're referring to these students as kids because, I mean, even us, we're still a generation removed. So, uh, you know, we can refer to the current students as kids. But uh, these dang kids nowadays, they got their face in their phones all the time and they're they're technologically based more so than the older generations, even us included. And what we talk about on this podcast a lot is the the gigantic influx of technology in the concrete industry and how fast it's moving and progressing. And you're talking about getting kids interested in the program, retaining kids, um, you know, giving them uh, an opportunity to do something in an industry they probably wouldn't have been able to see themselves in beforehand. So I guess my direct question is with the way the industry is moving towards more automation, more technology, uh, being more efficient on the job site, do you see the industry kind of adapting to the students nowadays in that giving them an opportunity to do work on a job site? Now, hard work's always a part of it, but are these new kids more suited or suitable for the technological element that we're seeing on a job site nowadays? Are you starting to see that? I think these students can really nail the technology side of things. I think it, it, it's just getting easier and easier for them because they've got so much familiarity with technology in their lives. Now, I think it's just like everything else. It's a two-way street. Industry has to adapt to these students and graduates that are coming out. But at the same time, and this is why I'm here, these students have to adapt to what their life is going to look like in industry. You cannot batch concrete. You cannot mine. You cannot build a construction project without the human element today. And my lifetime for sure, your lifetime almost certainly, and even the students that are just coming into the program right now, their lifetime, we're not gonna be building 100% or even 50% automated construction projects. So being able to function as a member of a, of a team, whether it's at the batch plant or at the precast plant or at the job site, we have to start doing a better job of adapting these students back to what the real world looks like, where you're going to deal with human interactions and motivating a team and different personalities and people who are going through life's issues that are having a bad day at work and the husband or wife and getting a divorce or kids sick and all of the different things. Or, you know, every every Monday morning, it's hard to pour if the Cowboys are in the playoffs and play a Sunday night game, let's probably not schedule a pour for Monday morning because it's going to be a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, especially if, if your Cowboys fans are watching a playoff game because they're most certainly uh, going to not win that uh, oh, I'm a Cowboys fan, man. Was, I'm grieving over here. That was mean. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that. I was at a family dinner this, over this past weekend, and 
the uh, one of the guys there runs runs a business, and as a business owner, someone in his company had like set a, a thing for the Monday after the Super Bowl. Yeah. And I live in Philadelphia, and he was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> he, he walked out of his office like, "What is wrong with you?" He's like, "What makes you think for any reason at all that I'm going to be able to make this meeting?" On Monday, he's like, I, you know what? I'm probably now I'm taking Tuesday off too. So you need to reschedule this meeting. That's funny. That's funny. But yeah, Ryan, that, that's a great point. And that's, you know, we all like to, we get caught up in, you know, how fast technology is progressing. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head. There's still a human element that you have to master. And it's almost like you need to try even harder for these newer generations to get them to understand that human element more so. I don't know. No, I think, I think you're right. And it's, it's a continuous education. You know, this, this, it's a weird cohort that we have coming into the university level now because of so much time online and, and at home and, and not interacting with humans. And, you know, all their assignments are turned in online. You, there's no handwriting anymore and, and just, just different. So not saying there's anything wrong with it because I want to be that grizzled old guy, ah, these kids these days and our, you know, our parents and grandparents were saying the same things about us, but, uh, you know, it's just, we have to, we have to develop those interpersonal skills and those leadership skills and team member skills. And you have to be able to be a leader, but you have to be able to be a follower too, because 90% of us in the industry are going to be followers. I mean, we're, everybody on this call has got a boss, so you have to, you have to be able to function in that role. You know, one of the the things that I was thinking about as we uh, were having this call and these discussions, we're talking about the socials and how MTSU does it, uh, which is just one company at a time. Uh, they'll bring like one in on a Tuesday, one in on a Thursday when it's busy, and then sometimes just once a week and have it be a formal presentation. You know, uh, just a little bit of information there. They have the students dress nicely. So the the students are coming in dressed appropriately, business attire, come in, be respectful. Um, now I'm starting to think in order to sort of funnel kids into the CI imprint, maybe that type of um, environment of a formal presentation from a Vulcan or an Argos or whoever's in, operating in, in your area, maybe they give those presentations at the high school level. Instead of, instead of just Ryan Penler coming in and saying, oh, you need to, you know, listen to me because I know about this great degree and I've, I've been in the industry. You guys got to come over here. You can be really successful. If Vulcan comes in and says, hey, guys, this is what we do. We can pay you a ton of money if you actually know what you're talking about. Here's a way for you to actually know what you're talking about. There's a degree right down the road that you can get. It's a bachelor's of science, not a vocational degree. By the way, my everybody I've ever met when I tell them what my degree was, they assume it was some kind of like two-year vocational degree. So uh, I feel you on like having to explain it to everybody. I think my wife still thinks it was a vocational degree, but she's a chemist, so you know how they are. Yeah, well, she'll be working for you one of these days, right? <laughs> uh, thankfully, she doesn't listen to my podcast, so you can say whatever you want, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, we're actually trying to do some of that. Our patrons board here at Texas State, I'm sure you – I mean, I know you have one at MTSU, but uh, I've asked various patrons to accompany me on some of these high school visits and these college and career fairs. And it's actually working out really well because I can say, yes, I'm a 
I'm a professor and you know, I'm here to recruit and it's great, great, great. And then I can say, but if you don't believe me, ask this guy or this gal right here because they're ready. They're here to hire you right now. If you had this degree, you'd have a job today. So I took, uh, I, I mentioned I went to Brazosport, a couple of high schools down there, which is kind of south of Houston last, last week and spoke to those high schools. And actually Vance Pool with Euclid Chemical came to those two guest speaking opportunities. So it works out well. I get to talk about the program and what they're going to do. And then he was able to talk about, you know, what 40 plus years of employment in the concrete industry looks like and and how he's seen it change over that time period. So we've done that a few times. It seems to be working out well. So we'll continue doing that too. Paul mentioned earlier, I'm trying to help out with that. That's exactly what I'm trying to do with, especially a couple of the high schools in my home county. Uh, when I graduated, there was only one high school because we were tiny. Uh, but now we got two high schools. But uh, I'm uh, I'm planning to go there and give a presentation on CIM, uh, you know, on their behalf. And the the director here, John, I don't he may or may not even you know attend with me, depending on the schedule. But I think he trusts me enough that you know I can I can do it on my own. And one of the reasons that I'm doing that for, especially like I said, my home county and a couple of these other rural counties, you know, an hour or so outside of Nashville, is that uh, I would assume that there are so many kids there that were in a similar situation to me in that maybe they thought that uh, if they stuck around the county, they probably wouldn't have had a good job uh, or they would have had to leave the county and go work somewhere else. And that's all true. But when, uh, you know, when Paul and Josh and I were kids, they, the the pathway through college was so emphasized like some, and I went, I know in my case back in Hickman County, they almost made it sound like I had to go to college to get, to, to make a good living. Um, but what they didn't tell me is that, okay, you have to go to college, but there's really nothing here for you to do after college. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, they didn't really, uh, they didn't really want to mention that, but the one thing I tell kids or anybody that I talk to in high school recently graduated high school, whatever, I tell them, you don't have to go to college. And this is, and I'll say this when I go and present on behalf of CIM, I'll tell people, you don't have to go to college to make a good living. But if you do want to go to college and you want to make a good living in this industry within a, a handful of years of, uh, of education, this is the degree to get, you know, and I'll, I'll probably expound on, you know, why that is, Kind of like what I said earlier about, you know, coming from an ag background, a very rural background, and uh, kind of wanting that, that same atmosphere, but with a uh, steadier, uh, more consistent income. I just know that there are so many high schools outside of that, you know, that 60-mile radius of these major cities that have zero clue about what some university really offers them outside of a, you know, business admin degree or something like that. Or a good football team on Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's why I'm doing it because there are so many kids out there that can benefit from this kind of lifestyle that would enjoy it too. Well, I think there's some really cool things like something Vance mentioned last week when we were talking to the high schools, and I didn't really think of it this way, and I'm, I'm glad he said it. He said, you are coming into an industry that can't really be outsourced. We're not going to outsource these concrete jobs to China or Indonesia or wherever it may be. It has to be produced locally and construction projects are 
built locally. We may have manufactured parts and pieces, but at the end of the day, it all has to come together at the batch plant, precast plant, or the construction job site. So you're entering an industry where you're not, you know, technology is being outsourced, manufacturing is being outsourced. A lot of these jobs are being outsourced. This, this is not going to be outsourced. It's, there's going to be a job here in the United States somewhere that utilizes your talents. Well said, sir. Hey, but appreciate all your time today. We got one last question we got to ask you. It's what we ask every first time guest. And that is, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen on a job site? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of the things that, that I've seen on job sites, but uh, the craziest thing was I was doing multifamily construction back in the day. And I was probably four or five years in. I was probably assistant project manager, maybe just moving up to project manager. And we had a uh, wallboard crew that had a skunk trapped in an apartment unit. And they thought the clever thing to do was just go ahead and board the skunk up inside the wall as they as they rolled on with the sheetrocking. So, you know, a couple, you know, we went into the, went into the building, man, it smells like skunk in here. Yeah, there was a skunk in here. And three, four weeks later, it still smelled like skunk. And then it smelled like death. And so we ended up finally figuring out that they just went ahead and sheetrocked the skunk up inside the wall. Fun times. Let us get all the way to finish stage before we figured out that it was in a wall. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Gosh. Yeah. If anybody's driven down the highway and smelled a dead skunk, I mean, it's... It's just absolutely as awful as it gets. Would you guys have to go in and, and get it out of there? What happened? Oh yeah, we had to. We pretty much had to rip the sheetrock out of that wing of the building on that floor and go in, and we had to actually paint all the wall studs with like an uh, aluminum type paint, scent reducing paint, and re-insulate, re-sheetrock, repaint, re-trim. It was it was a bad deal. So yeah, fun times. It's not often I'm left speechless. After one of these, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last story that left Joey speechless was uh, the the naked guy that ran out of the meth clinic in Florida or whatever over yeah. across the job site. So, well done, sir. You're kind of on par with that. All right, we're good. I got I got lots more crazy job site stories. If you all are ever interested, we just have a whole episode on crazy job site stories. And we've we've actually talked about doing exactly that. We've got other people that have reached out that said, you know what, I have a better story. I should have told you. And I think one day we're going to put that special together. Uh, sir, where can folks find you after they hear this podcast? They want to learn about uh, meet meet with you, connect with you, or learn more about the CIM program at Texas State. Well, my cell phone number is two one zero five five nine. 3219. That's the quickest and easiest way to get a hold of me. Call me, text, message me, whatever. Email address here at Texas State is Ryan, R Y A N dot Penleric, P E N L E R I C K at txstate.edu. Fantastic. He's also available on LinkedIn if you haven't seen him on there. He actually does have some pretty good posts. Uh, you'd never have any idea he was some old guy that didn't know what he was doing. You'd think there's uh, <laughs> some little 20-something running that account because it's pretty entertaining. You're consistent. I mean, you're consistent. You're on there consistently posting stuff, and that's that's really the key to there. all this stuff is consistency. That's it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Josh, did you have anything else before we get out of here? Uh, no, that's all I got. We really appreciate your time. I'll make sure to link in all of your contact information into the show notes so uh, people can find you a little bit uh, a little bit easier. 
and uh, you know, enjoyed your time. Until next time. Thank you today for uh, Ryan Pinlaric coming on, brother. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, next time we're out in Texas, we will holler at you, and uh, we'll be at Conag in March. So if you've got any people going, just let us know. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, All right. man. Take care. See you. All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and following along. If you like our program, uh, reach out to a friend and let them know about us. Also, hit us up on social media. Our LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram pages are all active. Uh, Follow us in whatever platform you choose. And be on the lookout here for upcoming content, whether it's our Add 10 More segments that air on Tuesdays or uh, the next upcoming episode. Also, look for us out at the Con Ag Convention in Las Vegas this year. We'll be there with press pass and a camera and some microphones. And uh, if you have anything you'd like to promote out there at the Con Ag Show for the industry, uh, feel free to reach out to us on our social media DMs, and uh, we will schedule a time to give you an opportunity to promote what it is that you do and how you help the industry. Uh, Speaking of helping the industry, we certainly appreciate Ryan and all that he does. A true industry professional with a lot of experience that's given back to the education side of our industry, which is certainly important. And uh, we feel very fortunate to do our small part in giving him a platform to, to help him do so, as well as the rest of the CIM program and the other schools associated with that you know, we certainly appreciate uh, all of the schools and, and everything that the CIM program is doing. So until next time, y'all be good.